Turn now with me to uh, Esther chapter 8, and let's uh, resume our study of that book. Uh, We've got a lot to read this morning. We've got a whole chapter to read, so bear with me as I begin at verse 1 of chapter 8, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is, we're wrapping up our study of Esther. We'll do that today, and Lord willing, next week will be the end. So here we go. Esther chapter 8 at verse 1. On that day, King Azurhurus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai uh, over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the uh, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and and she said, "If it please the king, and if I I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters revised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king." For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Azurus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict... Written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and to the governors and to the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to its each its each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Azurus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Azurus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being published, publicly displayed in all, to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses and were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Haman is dead, 
he was hung on a 75-foot-tall gallows. But the edict, that edict of death, that evil plan of his that he set in motion, that, that lives on. And it lives on primarily because of a feature in Persian law. That feature is known as the law of irrevocability. It is mentioned in verse 8. Did you see that? That um, the king's seal with the uh, cannot be revoked. Now, gang, this is not the first time that you've heard about something like this. If, you've, if you're familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you remember that one? I mean, as a Sunday schooler, you, you heard about Daniel in the lion's den. Well, you recall, I hope, that in that story, the king wanted to set Daniel free, but he couldn't. He couldn't because of the law of the Medes and the Persians, which could not be revoked. Now, gang, lest you think that a little bit antiquated and ancient and and unsophisticated, I want you to know that you in the 21st century America, um, you too have been influenced by such a thing. Um, If you ever went to law school, you you, you studied this. You remember uh, there was a book written in 1644 by Samuel Rutherford. The title of the book was Lex Rex. Remember that? Anybody remember Lex Rex? It's a Latin phrase which means law king or the law is the king. And Samuel Rutherford wrote it because he was trying to delineate the, the, the rules, uh, the, the, um, the freedoms of the king. And he said in that book that even the king was to obey the law. He, um, he was arrested for that book and his book was burned. But that idea, that idea was brought over into American democracy because even elected officials are supposed to, let me underscore that word, supposed to, Um, even elected officials are supposed to obey the law because lex rex, law is the king. Now, um, Haman is dead. Um, Esther now comes and uh, appears before the king again and she pleads with Xerxes to Avert this evil plan, which is what she says in verse 3. But the king is unable because of the law of irrevocability. Not all the power, not all the money, and all the kingdom will allow the king to change that law. The only solution is to write another one. Another law that will counteract the first one with equal force. And so immediately after Haman has been hung, Esther um, summons Mordecai. They go into the presence of, Esther, of, of Xerxes and she explains who he is to her. And then she um, <coughs> pleads for the life of the Jews. At that point, Xerxes gives to Mordecai, the signet ring, which had previously been worn by his enemy Haman, and he says to Esther and Mordecai, here's the pen. Write another one. And so that's what they do. In verses 9 through 14, they they write another one, another law, to counteract... The other one. 
And what you see here is this amazing reversal, um, uh, this, this power that used to be Haman's is now transferred to Mordecai. Whereas Haman, the, uh, the villain, was once in control, he isn't anymore. He's dead. So everything has been, the tables have been turned. Now, in this new law that they write, the Jews are given permission to take whatever steps necessary to defend themselves. They are permitted to engage in civil war even inside the capital of Susa. The once helpless have now been empowered. The people who, who mourned back in chapter 4... The people who mourned now rejoice in verse 15 of chapter 8. In fact, we're even told in verse 17 that there were many who converted to Judaism as a result of this whole experience. And it's in chapter 9. I didn't read this this verse, but in chapter 9, it says it best. Uh, Read down to the bottom of verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, um, uh, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Now, guys, um, if you've been paying attention uh, in this, this series on Esther, you know that the reverse that occurred really has to do with the, uh, the, 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 um, the role of Haman and Mordecai. Haman was the bad guy, and Mordecai was the, uh, was the condemned Jew, and now everything is reversed. Um, but not just for Mordecai. Well, can I read you just three quick examples? Um, in chapter 3, verse 10, we're told that the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. But in chapter 8, verse 2, we read, and the king took off his signet ring which he had taken from Haman and given it to Mordecai. Oh, oh, in chapter 3, Haman got the ring. But in chapter 8, that's off his finger and it's on, it's on Mordecai's. Here's another one. Chapter 3, verse 12. You don't, you don't need to turn. But the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded. But in chapter 8, verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 20th. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai uh, commanded. Well, in chapter 3, it was all that Haman commanded. But now it's all that... Mordecai, just one more, chapter 3, verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples that are ready for that day. But then you turn to chapter 8 in verse 13, and we're told um, that, that uh, this, this decree was to be sent out, a copy was, was written, was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. The counter decree was now sent out, whereas in chapter 3, Haman's decree was sent out. Everything that was upside down got turned right side up. An enormous reversal. Now, now ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that that theme is a huge theme throughout the Bible? A reversal. One of the 
real storylines of the Bible, folks, is that God is going to accomplish that kind of reversal where everything upside down is made right side up. He's going he's to do that on a universal scale. Everything was once turned on its ear, but it's going to be turned right side up. In this story, when the month of Adar, the 13th day rolls around, God uses not miracles. Gang, you realize there is not one tiny miracle found in this entire book. God doesn't use miracles, but he uses the natural outworkings of all of the ethical and political flaws that were inherent in Persian law and in Persian government. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what theologians call providence. He does not use miracles. He takes all that which is inherent with inside the government and with inside the law, and he uses it to accomplish his, his, his purposes. God governs all of his creatures, all of their actions, all of their circumstances, throughout all human history, not with the use of miracles. He uses the normal and the ordinary course of human life. Gang, God continues to govern his universe. He, he governs human wills, human decision making, to bring about things that he has promised centuries before. And so God is operating using everything contained within the, 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 the human system and uses it to accomplish that which he determined to accomplish. That, ladies and gentlemen, is called providence. You know, guys, I, I think it's easier for us to think of God in control of galaxies than it is for us to think of God in control of human wills and human decisions. You know, the book um, of Proverbs, Solomon, Solomon makes this statement. Um, I think you know this one. He says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whithersoever he wills. But the message of the book of Esther is that the heart of the king is not the only heart he turns. The heart of the king is not the only one that he turns whithersoever he wills. He turns yours. And he turns mine. You know, guys, um, the, uh, the psalmist David says some things in Psalm 139 that I'm telling you, I know you've read before. But I wonder if you've ever thought about this. This is Psalm 139. Let me, let me just read it. David is talking about God and he says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know you sat down just a few minutes ago? 
That was known. You discern my thoughts from afar. What is it you're thinking right now? You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. One more. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. And your eyes saw my unformed, my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were performed for me, that were formed for me. You know what I've just read you, ladies and gentlemen? When you stand up, when you sit down, your thoughts, your words, your days. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. You just sang that. About ten minutes ago, you just sang that. Gang, that is called providence. The book of Esther is about God's providence. And I would suggest to you that there is no other book in the entire Bible that speaks to the issue of God's providence better than does the book of Esther. God takes all of the flaws, all of the machinations woven into the government of Persia and uses it to accomplish his own ends. Said very simply, God governs all of history. You see, that's why I said it's sometimes easier to think about him governing galaxies than it is to govern me. He knows when I sit down. He knows when I stand up. He knows my thoughts from afar. He knows my words even before I speak them. And, and in his book, all of my days, before there was ever a one of them, were written in that book. Is that who you believe in? Because that's the God that's presented in this book. Now, guys, I, I want to take two features of this story, and I want to <clears throat> underscore those two features, and then we'll be done. But <clears throat> the first one has to do with this whole thing about irrevocability, the irrevocability of Persian law. You know, Xerxes' laws, Xerxes' words were irrevocable as, as far as the kingdom of Persia went. But the truly irrevocable words are the ones that God speaks. In fact, that's what the Bible says. Um, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one of my words will pass away. Not, not, not one jot, not one tittle, not, not one iota will, will go unfulfilled. <clears throat> Guys, listen, listen to this. Let, let me read this to you. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you understand that? It's not that hard. But the thing that I wanted to say is, do you know that that's irrevocable? How about this one? It's a little longer. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with man and they will be with him and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. You understand that one? That that one's a little tougher indeed. But here's my question to you. Do you realize that that's irrevocable? You see, the words that I just read you and and so many others that I could read you, those are words that define reality, both the present reality and future reality. Or do they? Tell me, my friend. Do those words define reality for you? Where do you go to get a description of reality? Um, Where do you go to find words that are irrevocable? What word for you is irrevocable? Your own? Where do you go to get the final say? Who gives you that? Is it psychology? Is it uh, MTV or Dr. Phil or, or Hollywood? Do your friends give it to you? Is it Wall Street? You know, I, I, maybe it is, but I think for so many of us, reality is dictated to us by our circumstances. And we allow our circumstances to, to, th- th- to dictate to us what is real. Do you know the name Chuck Pagano? <clears throat> you know that name? Chuck Pagano is the uh, head football coach of the Indianapolis Colts. And Chuck has leukemia. Um, <clears throat> on November the 4th, two weeks ago, the Colts traveled to South Florida to play the Miami Dolphins. And um, the Colts came back in the fourth quarter to beat the Dolphins. And so after the game, Chuck Pagano visited the locker room. Chuck has, has stepped aside temporarily while he gets treatment for his leukemia. But he visited the, the, uh, the locker room of his team to congratulate his team on, on this come-from-behind victory. And, and he delivered quite an emotional speech, which was all over ESPN the next day. I, I mean, they must have broadcast that thing 100 times in a day. I, I, I saw it 10 
Uh, and, and I bet you some of you saw it too. The, the speech that Chuck Pagano gave to the Indianapolis Colts in their locker room. And I don't have it down word for word, but this is pretty much what he said, at least in, in part. He said, he said, we all have circumstances. I have circumstances. He was referring to his leukemia. And he said, but we also have vision. And then he goes on to explain what his vision was for them as winning a Super Bowl together. But Chuck is refusing to let circumstances describe reality for him. And in that, I applaud him. It's that vision part that's the problem, folks. Chuck's Chuck's vision of winning a Super Bowl and hoisting the Lombardi trophy, and he said several times, you know, he may do that. But by no means is that a certainty. My point is this, ladies and gentlemen. Where do you get yours? Or on what do you base your view of future certainty? Where do you get your vision? Let me ask that differently. As you construct a life, on what do you base it? Where do you go to get instructions when it comes to building a marriage, raising your kids, arranging your finances? Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, whose laws for you are irrevocable? I can tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that question shows up in pretty much every decision you make. Because in every decision we make, your sources are pretty clear. You know, guys, events, circumstances can frighten us, they can disorient us, they can knock us off balance, and we're left at the the mercy of our own feelings. But oh, my friends, it is a great mistake to let events define reality for us. Events are transitory. They're temporary. They pass. In one of the statements that Jesus makes, he says, heaven and earth will pass away. But not my words. You know, guys, stability or sanity in, in the midst of um, circumstances, circumstances that, that knock you off balance, that, that upset your life, sanity. Sanity is gained. By trying to find out how it is that God explains my circumstances. Because I can guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, this God of providence is in charge of those circumstances. And so our, our, our goal is to find out what 
how has he explained what it is that I'm now tasting? Or said simply, I go to the word of God. I sit beneath it. And I ask him to help me understand what I'm experiencing. I go to his word. Which contains words. That are irrevocable. You believe that? We'll read you one more. Jesus is speaking to Martha. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then, ladies and gentlemen, he adds this. It's in this text. It's right here in this verse. Let me read you the whole thing. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, period. Do you believe this? He says that. Are these words revocable? Or irrevocable. Because there's no third option, folks. There's no like, it's kind of revocable. Guys, if you choose to believe that those words are revocable, then it is up to you to find another basis on which you base your life. And, and the, the possibilities are pretty much limitless. But in the final analysis, I think it always comes down to my word versus his. It's either I build my my life on my word because that's the one that's irrevocable, or I build my life on his. And if I choose to build my life on mine, very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, that will work for a while. And then life has a way of smacking you upside the head, doesn't it? You know, if you choose to believe that words like these are irrevocable, then you build your life on them. It's kind of like that story in Matthew 7 when Jesus talks about the two people who build their houses, one built on sand and one built on a rock. And they both got smacked. Oh, yes, we both get smacked. It doesn't make a difference. I mean, we both, the, the, the rains come and the winds blow and the waters rise for both of us. But wonder of wonders, one of those houses doesn't fall because it's built on a right foundation, it's built on words. That are irrevocable.
you believe that? It'll show up in every decision you make. I've got to do one more thing, and then I'm done. There's one other feature of this story that I, I just want to mention quickly. There's a reversal in this story, and I tried to point it out by showing you those three things in um, comparing Haman and Mordecai. There, there is a giant reversal in this story. I mean, who could have written this except God? A giant reversal. But as grand as is this reversal in this book, it pales into insignificance as compared to another reversal that's mentioned elsewhere in this book. Let me tell you about it. Guys, in the Garden of Eden, back in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, the King of Kings, God, decreed death against humanity by saying this, In the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. Adam ate, and humanity died. And just like Xerxes, God will not rescind his decree of death, nor does he rescind the law. What he does do, however, is that he issues a counter-decree. God's irrevocable decree of death and destruction has been countered by his decree that all who believe in Jesus Christ should not perish but have everlasting life. It is a counter-decree of life. So, my friends, just like in the book of Esther, if you stay on one side of the law, you die. But you can take advantage of a counter-decree. A counter-decree that invites you to come to Christ and to live. You get set free from a decree of death by embracing Jesus Christ as, a, as your Savior, who is, the, who is the same one who said this, whoever believes in me Has, not might have, will have, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Irrevocable words of both life death. Your call. Our Father, I do pray that you'll remind us that uh, what you have said you mean, 
and that not one iota, not one jot, not one tittle of your word will go unfulfilled. It's a promise of great life. It's a promise of a new heavens and a new earth. It's a promise of forgiveness, and we bless you for it, O God. But if you brought here this day people who have not yet embraced this Savior, would you confront them, not so much with my words, but with yours? And then by the power of the Holy Ghost, would you remind them that yours, your words, are not only true, but they're irrevocable. Would you use your word, O God, to draw men and women to yourself? We ask it for Jesus' sake.